0: Welcome to The Real Python Podcast. This is episode 34. Are you ready to move beyond flat files for your data in Python? Maybe you're not sure where to start with databases and SQL. This week on the show, David Amos returns with another batch of PyCoders Weekly articles and projects. We cover a Real Python article about managing data with SQLite and SQL Alchemy. David explores the intricacies of using the Modulo operator. We also cover several other articles and projects from the Python community including how to shoot yourself in the foot with Python, exploring fractals on a cloud computer, the DMCA takedown request for YouTube DL, Python for feature film, an online multiplayer text-based game framework, and a sorting algorithms visualizer. This episode is brought to you by the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast, Silicon Valley's favorite daily podcast. All right, let's get started. Real Python podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey David, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks a lot good to be back. All right, so what have you brought us to, to start with here? Uh, My first one this
1: week is called How to Shoot Yourself in the Foot with Python Part 1 by Miguel Brito. It's sort of a a fun and whimsical look at some of the things. I'm assuming these are things that have affected Miguel personally. Some of them may look familiar to listeners. Some of them look familiar to me when I was first starting out with Python. And it just catalogs five different things that you you might run into that sort of make you stop and go, what in the world is going on here? And I'm just going to go through and list the, the five things and you know, I won't go into all the details so that there's still something fun to uh, read in the article. But he talks about uh, implicit string concatenation. And this is one that maybe not so much of a gotcha or maybe it depends on how it comes up, but it's something that for me, it was just the first time I saw it, I was like, wait a second, that that's valid? Like that's real. Syntax it looked kind of odd to me. So the premise here is that if you have two strings and you want to concatenate them, usually you know the the most basic way to do that would be to put a plus sign, right? Use the concatenation operator between those those two strings. Yeah, you concatenate them and you get a single string back with all the characters from those two strings. Well, you can remove that concatenation operator and just have two strings side by side with a space between them, and that will implicitly concatenate to a single string. So this works like if you want to split a long string up, that's a technique I actually have used some on my own where you put a bunch of strings inside of parentheses, not not like a tuple, you don't have commas between them, but you you put an open parenthesis in the first string and then hit enter and on the next line you put the second string and then hit enter after that and put another string and so on until you have your your long string that you want split up, and then close the parentheses, and that will just implicitly concatenate everything into a single string. So I guess uh, it's something he ran into and just wasn't wasn't clear. Like, wait a second, like <laughs> what's going on here? There's not even an operator. How is this? How is this working? So there's that implicit string concatenation. Something interesting that he found with the walrus operator, which was new in uh, three point eight. So that is that you might expect, some people might expect it to work similarly to an assignment where like a, like you can assign multiple values on the same same line. So you have like a comma b equals two comma three. And then when you inspect a, it's equal to two and, and the variable b is, is equal to uh, three. So there's something going on there called tuple unpacking, which is what works in that case. But you might say huh, can you do the same thing with the walrus operator? Like, could I do a comma b and then, you know, colon equals 16 comma 19? And that gives potentially some unexpected results. So if you run it in the same session that you ran where you signed a to two and b to three, when you do this a comma b walrus operator 16 comma 19, you end up with a three tuple of 2 comma 16 comma 19. And it just looks like, wait a second, like what in the world just happened? How did I get this three tuple out of it? So he talks about why that, that happens. And I'm not going to mention why I'll leave that to, to those of you that want to read the, read the article and then uh, some other, you know, weird things that could happen if you didn't have values already uh, set there. So the moral of that story is don't assume that an operator that looks like another one sort of behaves the same way (laughs) in that case. The next gotcha talks about is to be careful when using uh, the plus equals, uh, this assignment, augmented assignment operator with lists. And this one doesn't have so much to do with the operator itself as it is just the way that these operators work with different different data types. Uh, So for example, if you have a list of integers and say one, two, three, four, and you make a copy, let's call that A, and you make a copy of that list, and you do B equals A, and then you do A plus equals five, six. So you've got this list of numbers now, one, two, three, four, five, six. That also affected B, because when you assigned A to B, what you did was assign a new name to the same list in memory. It's just pointing to the same same list as before. So you can contrast this to the way that this uh, augmented uh, assignment works with, say, something like an integer. So if you have the variable a, you assign it the value one, and you have set b equal to a, then if you increment a, a plus equals one, then a is equal to two, but b is still equal to one, because they're not, you get a new copy of that integer when you, when you assign when you sign A to B, which doesn't happen with with lists because lists are mutable. The moral of that story is just to don't assume that similar looking operators or same looking operators work the same way on different data types. Yeah. That's another thing that can get you. Another gotcha is mutable defaults. This one, I think a lot of people maybe have seen before. If you've seen a lot of these kinds of gotchas. But that's if you have like a default argument and a function that takes the defaults to like a list. So if you don't pass anything into that that parameter, then you get then it just gets assigned a a new list. This can this can cause problems because that default argument is always pointing to the same that same list the first time it gets uh, it gets called, yeah. or really not even when it gets called. It's probably when it happens when it gets uh, compiled to, to bytecode. It's it's creating that default argument, that empty list, and then every time you call that function, if you don't pass something to that parameter, then it's just going to use that same list over and over again. So there's some weird things that can can happen there. And then another one is, he calls it chained operations gone wrong. This is when you have things like These like chained expressions, like twenty-five is greater than x is greater than and equal to ten. So you like you you want to verify that some you know a value is uh, between you know in some range. So what happens here is if you're not careful with parentheses or if you don't understand necessarily everything about what's inside of those parentheses, you can run into some some funny issues. So he's got an example where you have some variable x and Say you do this um I'm not sure what value he's assigned to it here, but okay, x is equal to ten, so you have a, a variable x that's assigned a value ten, and you have this expression twenty equals equals x equals equals zero. no parentheses or anything. You look at this, you're like, well, clearly that's false because twenty is not equal to x, and x is not equal to zero, so that that should be false now, if you put parentheses around the the left side of that, so the twenty equals equals x. Now you've got parentheses, 20 equals equals X, that part in parentheses, and then the result of that, equals equals zero, that evaluates to true. And that might throw some people off because what's happening there is you've got the 20 equals equals X is being evaluated to false, right? False, yeah. It's returning false. And then you're saying is false equal to zero. And in Python, the Boolean True and false are subclasses of of the int class of the int data type. So true is is one and false is zero. So false really is equal to zero. And you can you can verify that in your in in the command line in the Python shell if you want. But by putting that parenthesis there, you actually changed, you might not expect it to change the value, but it actually does change the return value. So when you're When you're doing these kinds of comparisons, again, when I look at this, I don't think it's so much about the parentheses as much as it is just when you're doing these kinds of comparisons. It's good to know like what you're actually comparing, right? Like not just what what the value is, but or you know, and what type it is, but what type that might be subclassed from. (laughs) Or uh, so you know, having a full understanding, right? Or it's going to evaluate to yeah, and what it what it's going to you know how it affects the evaluation and everything. So. So, anyways, there's the five gotchas. It's labeled part one. So my guess is there's gonna be <laughs> more in the future. <laughs> some more in the in the future. Yeah. And what I like about it is that, you know, it's you know, he's sort of Miguel's sort of being vulnerable here. He's saying, Look, these are some weird things that I I came across while I'm, you know, learning Python and programming in Python. And this is you know, it made me stop and go, what in the world? And, you know, I'm trying to explain it. He has some explanations in here and uh, I thought he did something interesting. So he has some explanations that some commenters pointed out as, hey, that's actually not the correct explanation for why that happens. And rather than, you know, deleting that and updating it, he just like crossed through it. So you can still see like, his old reasoning, and then says, you know, thanks to so-and-so who kindly corrected me and everything. So it's sort of this living document he's put together that, that I assume, you know, he's learning a lot about the way Python works by, by doing all this. So it's a really good example of why it's good to write these kinds of things down and document these parts of your journey. And, you know, if you have it in you, you know, be a little bit vulnerable and put it out there and let people correct you. And, and, you know, the internet can be harsh, but yeah. (laughs) <laughs> but he's, you know, had a lot of, you know, nice people that have just given him some sort of gentle criticism and, and haven't been like, oh, you know, you're, you're uh, stupid or something like that. They're just, Hey, actually that's not the way it works, but, um, you know, check this out. This is actually what's going on. So really cool article, Miguel, thanks for putting it out there. Uh, I enjoyed reading it.
0: Yeah. Cool. What do you got? So my next one is a real Python article. This one's from Doug Farrell. Who's a previous guest on the show, and yeah. he came on to talk about APIs. And Doug has a lot of background in creating APIs and dealing with SQL Alchemy. And so this is kind of a, a dive deeper into the area of SQL and SQLite. There's so many ways that I've heard this that pronounced <laughs> <laughs> SQLite or SQL Lite or SQ Lite. So I, I may interchange them. I'm sorry. Um, it's another one of those words. I don't know <laughs> how you like to pronounce it. But it's called data management with Python, SQLite, and SQL Alchemy. It starts off with the idea of okay, you have data, and you're going to be working with potentially where a lot of people start, which is you know kind of going back to last week's episode with Al Swaggart talking about automating the boring stuff and doing stuff inside of Excel or doing stuff in sort of these other situations when when you have a flat file of data, uh, CSV or what have you. There's certain advantages to that. there's certain ways that you, know, you kind of work with that that kind of information, and probably the biggest advantage is there's sort of built in things in Python for reading it, and then there's really popular libraries like things like Pandas for working with it and manipulating that data and and so forth. But as a storage medium, it's got a lot of kind of problems It's very hard to update the data in it also you potentially if you're sharing your work with multiple people. It's not really a shared source. And so you're you're walking around with files or emailing files and potentially dealing with multiple versions of things. The records themselves are just individual rows. And then you're having to have tons and tons of columns if you're adding attributes about these things. And it kind of starts to feel like, well, maybe there should be a central thing like a database that can contain all of these items. And that's where this structure of one of the simplest databases that i've worked with is this you know sqlite mm-hmm. and sqlite is a file which is kind of nice it's an individual file that can be hosted can be hosted in a shared kind of thing or it could be you know something that's up on the web uh, you know an api endpoint or what have you and what's nice about it is it doesn't require a whole lot of additional structural stuff about it you know it's literally just this file with a extension .db So he talks about creating that, creating the the structure. It's sort of a bit of a primer on SQL if you've never done anything with SQL. Um, So you're learning some of the basic commands behind it. And I've probably mentioned this, I don't know, too many times that that's my background where I kind of got really, really back into programming. And so it was like, oh, yeah, this is pretty neat. And And then it kind of gets into this, they call them ERD, which are these relational diagrams that you kind of create. To decide okay if i'm going to take this thing in this example it's a set of books how do you decide how this data should be related to each other in the case of a book there's an author but there's also a publisher and so those things you know one author could write multiple books potentially and a publisher might publish multiple books and so there's also this relationship where then okay this author might work with multiple publishers and, and and so forth, and so you kind of need to decide well, how do you want to divide these things up, and creating those tables, and so it goes into that, and I think it's really kind of neat to kind of just see that background if you've maybe you've never delved into this area and and thought about what's what's happening there, and so advantages there is that when you go to update things, it, you're updating a single place, you're you, you can update with a single command, and it's going to go and adjust all the records, which is really powerful, and then. Really, the crux of the rest of the article dives into working with um, SQL Alchemy and this sort of nice conversion from not having to do everything inside of raw SQL statements, which is yet another language, but to be able to turn things into these Python objects, which kind of gets a little bit into a little bit object-oriented kind of stuff, where you're mm-hmm. you know structuring things and you're kind of creating methods that these objects do and, and attributes that they can return. And then how this software connects to that and returns things back and forth. And it's a very powerful tool. And you, you've probably heard of it if you've you know seen, well, Doug's ha- has a whole series of <laughs> articles about Flask and, and SQL Alchemy and yeah. um, this thing called Connection. And uh, it's like, I don't know, three parts. I'm not even sure if- the,
1: Several uh, parts, yeah. I don't know the exact yeah, number. Yeah, it, it
0: might even be four parts. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a great resource for you to dive in and learn a lot about it. You know, by the end of it, He's diving into creating an actual, you know, Flask sort of application with this. And then there is code and examples where it actually has an example of a REST API server. So you get to kind of check out that code and kind of play around with it and kind of like, you know, going from like a very simple structure, you know, literally has like, I don't know, maybe 20 books or something at most to a a very large application. In this case, it's like a music thing. And again, talking about relationships, the idea of like, you know, artists and songs and and things like that, yeah, and then you know the idea of querying, the idea of like okay, how could I do this through Python to be able to group things, query things, order things, you know very, very common techniques that people need to do with data, so it's it's a neat deep dive. I have a couple qualms with it, um <laughs> I actually mentioned to Doug that I would have structured that e r d differently, <laughs> you know, and that and that's you know we get into nerdery of that kind of stuff, but to me, like I feel like a book is the central relationship between the two uh, individual keys like i feel like you know yes an author can write multiple books and even the same book could be published by multiple publishers but it would be a different book in that case a different record and so it's it's a lot of structural kind of thinking you need to do to kind of dive into that stuff and that's something where I, i've had to deal with a lot of that and kind of building little apps for small businesses or working with data like mortgages and <laughs> <laughs> and loans yeah. and things like that and banking and trying to find all the relationships between them and so it's been interesting so it was kind of kind of fun in a way to <laughs> dive into my background and like think about how this fits into yeah you know these relationships here yeah i mean a couple
1: of things my thought on that is you know at some point i feel like as an author you have to draw the line on, a, on an example and right? So like, you know, and how much complexity do you want? Yeah, totally. <laughs> but also, you know, when I look at this article, it's uh, it's not a short article. It's, it's, it's pretty in-depth.
0: No, it's pretty healthy.
1: <laughs> what I love about it is that this is like for the absolute beginner in a lot of ways. It's almost a zero to hero kind of thing yeah. where if you have no experience working with data in Python or even really working with data in like a, uh, any kind of like managed format database at all, this is going to take you all the way through that and you're going to come away with a lot of really good understanding of how this actually works. And this this would set you up to really, you know, go explore even further and and, and look at some intermediate articles on, on the topic.
0: So yeah, there's a lot of resources there too, which is good. A lot of links to extra stuff. Yeah, well done, Doug. When the New Yorker magazine asked Mark Zuckerberg how he gets his news, he said the one news source he definitely follows is Tech Meme. Every day by 5 p.m., the Tech Meme Ride Home has all the tech news you need. Listen to the one podcast anyone who's anyone in Silicon Valley listens to every single day. Search your podcast app now for Ride Home and subscribe to the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast. So what do you got next?
1: Next on my list is... What do you What do you think? A math article? <laughs> math, hooray! <laughs> no, it's It's a fun one. It's it it, it dives into some math, but uh, it's really about creating these animations and creating them on like a cloud server, but just set on uh, sort of a mathematical background. So the article is called "Exploring Fractals on a Cloud Computer." And let's face it, if you're going to make an animation, animation, fractals are some of the coolest animations you can make. They're just mesmerizing to look at. Uh, so this comes to us, uh, from Eric Mathis, who, uh, is a, a teacher. I don't know if he's a middle school or high school teacher, but he, I've, I've heard him speak, uh, on, um, uh, I think he's been a couple of times now on the, uh, t- teaching Python podcast, but okay, he's got, um, a really cool blog that he, post a bunch of different stuff on. This week, it's, uh, well, this was a couple weeks ago Now this article, but Exploring Fractals on a Cloud Computer. It also is a pretty hefty uh, article. And, you know, just looking at the table of contents, there's kind of like, there's sort of like three main sections. There's uh, how to generate a fractal image, and then how to animate a fractal, and then how to use cloud servers to render your animations so they don't take like 10 hours on your, on your local machine. <laughs> and, uh, but he goes into a lot of depth in the, in the actual math background and, you know, using complex numbers and how you like generating these fractals and everything. And he starts out using Matplotlib and then later switches to using PIL or, or PIL, which is a, an image library. That way you're not like creating a plot first and then having to convert that plot into an image. You're just directly creating an image that's a little bit more efficient in that sense. Then he talks about using arg parse to create like a whole command line interface for all of this to like, to actually generate your your images and then moving into generating sequences of images and then putting that into an animation file. And it just, I mean, it really walks you through this whole process and you, you start, kind of at zero and you end up with this really cool little CLI application that can make these animations. And then it gets into like, wow, okay, if you really want to have like lots of detail in your animation and like high resolution, then, you know, even with uh, the best MacBook or best, you know, PC on the market with, you know, know, 32 cores and whatever, 64 gigabytes of RAM, whatever you've got, like, you know, some insane amount, it's still going to probably going to take you like, several hours to generate a really high-definition detailed animation. So what can you do to reduce that time? Well, you can uh, use a cloud server that tap into, you know, the powerful computing resources that they have there. He does mention, you know, there's lots of different kinds of servers that are available. For this particular one, the hosting platform he uses is Linode, and he talks about how to set it all up and everything. And he also has some, like, pricing information there to kind of have you an idea, like, you know, if you really wanted to do this, like how much is it actually, because it's not going to be free. You might get some free time, I guess, at the beginning if you're like a brand new customer for some of these platforms, but past that, it's not going to be free. So he does talk into like, if you really want to do this, here's how much it's going to cost you like per hour for, you know, different kinds of servers. But anyways, you end up with, like I said, this really cool little command line application and some really cool little animations. He's got uh, some videos that he's put in the article of the different kinds of animations that you can create with this. So really fun stuff. And if you're into numbers and fractals and and then also just want to get some practice with, you know, using image libraries and using arc and writing a CLI and getting some practice with uh, like a cloud yeah. uh, compute system, then um, yeah that's a really good way to to get some practice there.
0: Yeah, kind of an article into project kind of thing, which is great. Yeah, exactly. So my next thing is actually a Reddit thread. And I don't know. I feel like it's a little bit news, but it's also connected to open source and kind of where these things to meet. And it's about a tool called YouTube DL, which is a, a tool that you can use to, in this case, code wise, it's helping you to download videos, which can fall into copyright types of issues depending on you know how you're, you're, you're using this tool. I personally have downloaded things from YouTube to be able to watch them later, like if I'm traveling and, and stuff like that. Like if it's a conference talk, something that's, you know, fairly long where I know I'm going to be, you know, sequestered away. And, you know, it's open source and it's free for people to, to grab. That's a legitimate case. But a lot of people may use these things in different ways. And so what's happened is there's been a DMCA takedown request and it's from the RIAA, which is the Recording Industry Association, Of America, and you might remember them from back in the Napster days and (laughs) going after (laughs) different services and so forth at the time. And you might say, "Well, what does this have to do with open source? You know, why would the record industry?" Well, you know, a lot of people may be using this tool for you know the ability to download the music from YouTube, which is, I guess, not uncommon. And there's different deals that YouTube has in place for paying the royalties, and so this would kind of go past it anyway. So (laughs) <laughs> There's a couple things kind of going on in here beyond the fair use things that I mentioned. The I think one of the sticking points that may have gotten this team of people who've you know created the YouTube DL in trouble is that they have integration tests, unfortunately, that use copyrighted content mm. as examples. And so when they're running these integration tests, it's actually going and grabbing specific files that are songs in, in these cases. And so maybe that might have, with that amount of traffic might have created some of the stuff to cause issues for them and then there's also in their documentation they mention a particular band by name and so that's not super great but yeah regardless you know it's one of these things where people want to kind of point the finger at Microsoft and I don't know if they can really be blamed in this particular case I, you know I, I know of other takedowns that have happened before you know GitHub was acquired so this is something to kind of keep in mind and, you know, there's a bit of an uproar about it and people looking at ways to be able to get versions of the code or fork it and, and so forth. But it's it's interesting and it's one of these things that, you know, like, you need to be careful in your open source projects to not, like, yeah. be sort of, I don't know, flagrant in the, in the way that you're, you know, using as examples. Um, I think you were talking about, like, I guess if somebody's setting up a CI/CD setup here with something like this to make sure it works, then... You know, again, it's going to hit these multiple files. Right. It's an
1: interesting situation because it's, you know, there are like tons of valid fair use applications of, of a tool like, like YouTube DL. Yeah. I guess, you know, the reason we're talking about this on this podcast is YouTube DL is a Python application.
0: Yeah. Library. Yeah.
1: So, you know, the, the issue with the RIAA is not an, like a Python issue, but it's, uh, but it's just something to highlight that uh, when you, like you said, when you, when you, Make an open source project, you know be careful with with you know how you are using that now, yeah, I mean don't don't mention copyrighted material <laughs> in your uh, or you know brand names uh, in your in your documentation and stay away from copyrighted material in your tests or anything like that if, if you have something similar to this. So I mean there would be my guess is there wasn't I mean I haven't looked at the code, but I got I gotta assume there wasn't a need to use that copyrighted material in those integration tests. They could have created some stupid little video on YouTube or even just a video of like a static image or something, right, that they have the rights to, and they could have done the test that way if they even needed that.
0: I guess there's there's the DRM protection, which they are in some cases circumventing too, which maybe that was part of the testing that was showing that that could do that. So again, that kind of gets into a bit of a gray area, which again we're not a legal <laughs> podcast in any way. <laughs> so. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. You know, but I also feel like, you know, this hurts. A lot of people rely on these kinds of tools that that have valid fair use applications. And this is uh, you know, throwing a wrench in their in their plan and and in and, and some people's jobs and and uh, livelihoods and, and they need to be able to use tools like this to document things right and, and that kind of stuff. So It's a weird situation. It'll be interesting to see how it evolves because I could see some agreement being made where if they remove certain things, I mean, maybe, I don't know. Like I said, I'm not super familiar with all the, the, all the discussions and everything going on behind all of this. But, you know, you look at the tool itself and to me, it's sort of like saying, you know what? You know, here's a crowbar. Burglars can use crowbars to enter. You know people's property illegally, therefore, like you shouldn't sell you know crowbars or we shouldn't make crowbars anymore, and it's like that's like kind of stretching it right like it's a it's a tool that has a real application, so yeah, it's just interesting development, and I'm curious to see how it's all gonna pan out if if they're actually gonna just it's gonna die and go away or or what's gonna happen here, yeah,
0: I feel like it probably will split off into other versions or but who knows, yeah. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another RealPython video course. It's titled Playing and Recording Sound in Python. The course is based on a RealPython article by Joska DeLonga, and in the course, instructor Joe Tatusco shows you how to use some of the most popular audio libraries to play and record sound using Python. By the end of the course, you'll know how to play MP3 and WAV files as well as a range of other audio formats, how to play NumPy and Python arrays containing sound, how to record sound using Python, and then how to save the recordings or audio files in a range of different file formats. I think exploring how Python can work with audio is not only fun, but a great way to explore the creative side of Python. It also could help you add a new set of multimedia features to your projects. And like most of the video courses on RealPython, the course is broken into easily consumable sections and has code samples for the techniques shown. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the search tool on realpython.com.
1: So what do you got next? The next thing I've got is a, another Real Python article by Jason van Schoonveld. Or, um, sorry, I need to ask him how to pronounce his name properly. It's,
0: it's Schoonveld.
1: Schoonveld. Thank you. Yeah. Called Python modulo in practice: How to use the modulo operator, or the, what you might call it the percent operator, but it's it's called the modulo in in mathematics. So this is a another very in depth article on you know one of these things that Real Python we have a lot of these kinds of articles where you, you look at this sort of simple thing and you think, wow, this is a huge article on this thing that seems like it should be relatively simple. But when you dig into it, it's actually not. And there's a lot of really fantastic information in this article. Because the module operator is something that you do use Maybe not all the time, or I mean, it's going to depend on what you're what you're doing, but it has a lot of very common applications in in programming, and he talks about some of these common applications like uh, checking if a number is even or odd so what the I guess I should start off saying just what the modulo operator does yeah. is it takes two numbers you know, like a uh, uh, ten and uh, say the number three and you do 10 % sign 3 10 mod 3 and it's it returns the remainder of dividing the value on the left 10 by the value on the right 3 so in this case it would be 1 because if you divide 10 by 3 it goes into it 3 times with a remainder of, of 1 right so that's the modulo operator he gets into so you can use this for example to check whether or not a number is uh, an integer is even or odd so if you if you do something, if you take a number and look at it modulo two, so you do some number percent two, if, if it returns a value of zero, that means two goes into that number evenly with no remainder, so it must be an even number. But if you get a one back, then you know that number must be odd. So that's a common use. You can also use it to do like a cyclical iteration. So you want to like iterate over a loop multiple Multiple times you can um, take an index that will kind of reset. Like you just do it, take your index mod some number, like the length of the loop or something, and it'll it'll just cycle over that loop cyclically. There are lots of lots of applications of the module operator in programming, so it does come up from time to time. And there's some interesting things to note about it. So one of the most interesting interesting things, and this is something that surprised me when I first saw it in Python, was how it works with negative negative numbers. So in in mathematics which is my background where I kind of started with programming for mathematics research but it, from a mathematical standpoint usually when you look at a number modulo some other number the you you look at the positive remainder. Yeah. In general I mean there are reasons you might look at like a negative remainder if it makes sense but for the most part we just assume that you know cuz you can you can what's the right way to describe it? You can have multiple quote unquote remainders that are like equivalent to each other. I'm not going to get into modular arithmetic and everything, but for the most part, a mathematician is going to say, if I want to know what what you get from some number modulo, some other, I want the positive answer. And if you in a language like JavaScript, that's what you get. And that's what I expected from Python, but you don't. Python keeps the sign of what's called the divisor. So that's the number that's going to be on the right hand side of the, the modulo operator. The, there's a a reason for that that has to has to do with how they're actually calculating the the remainder. And there's an interesting article that it's not actually I'm not sure that it's mentioned here if it's linked in here. But there's a there's a reason that they made this decision in Python and some other languages that has to do with timestamp calculations and why keeping that that negative sign actually makes makes more sense then returning the positive one. So it's an interesting design choice there. But it's something good to know about the way that this modulo operator works. You might get something that you don't expect when you use it with a negative divisor. However, the modulo operator works with floating point numbers, not just inter- integers. And in that case, it works differently. Or I'm sorry, the not the modulo operator, but a function in the math module called fmod F stands for float or floating point mod. And it's recommended that you use F mod instead of the modulo operator when working with floating point numbers because of uh, floating point imprecision. It handles that rounding better when you, when you have to deal with these, these floating point numbers, but it doesn't work with negative divisors the same way that, that the modulo huh. operator does the percent sign. So that's an interesting thing that, uh, that Jason points out in this article. And he talks about, you know, this, there's a div mod function and you know, there's all sorts of these like variations and everything. Uh, so there's lots of, I mean, really, really good information in here. If you if you ever have to use this or find yourself using variants of it, then this is stuff that you're gonna want to know. And he talks about some more advanced applications, like how to determine if a number is prime how to implement ciphers yeah. using Modulo uh, and some advanced uses using like the decimal class, how to use the Modulo operator with your own custom classes. So there's just a ton of really, it's it's a really complete look at this Modulo operator, which at first glance, you might think, what what can you say about that? You know, just here's a few examples and here's how it works. And then here's a ton of information that, that if it weren't pointed out, you might never look up and it might become one of those... Uh, Things you you end up shooting yourself in the foot with, right? <laughs> if, again, if, yeah, again, yeah. Uh, if you aren't aware of it, so so yeah, just a really in-depth, thorough article and uh, a good read if you ever need to use the module operator. I suggest uh, taking a glance at at Jason's article.
0: Yeah, I know about the use in, in cryptography. Like I've been reviewing some courses that have been coming out recently about cryptography things, and that it's a common tool for that, which is which is neat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did I didn't know about. You know the negative numbers. Not I rarely use it for that. So <laughs> that's interesting. The behavior is very different. Yeah. My next one is is something I've been interested in uh, in ways of using Python in in kind of creative and artistic ways that are a little more advanced. You guys probably get that from me. And it's called Python for Feature Film, and it's by um I'm going to pronounce, I hope I get his name right. Drew Govil, and his website is gfx.dev, and this is a professional. Working in the movie space, working on—I guess the the term would be just visual effects. Because it it's, it's a variety. He's worked on things that are you know purely animation, something like uh, Hotel Transylvania two to Cody with a Chance of Meatballs, into some of the most recent Spider Man movies. And he uses a tool called Maya, which is a, a modeling software that allows you to create three D models of everything from solid, you know, like a car or characters and so forth. And you might say, well, where does Python fit into all this? Well, it can help not only with something that, you know, we've talked about before of like dealing with files and assets and moving these things around in the the whole sort of pipeline of of everything. You can think of like these movies use so many images and, and very often it's not like a single file like just oh it's just a movie file no they're actual f- individual frames right and then the frame is actually made up of tons of little separate images that are then going to be composited together and so having automated tools for dealing with all that data python's a great you know resource for something like that and you know you can think of command line tools for doing things like that but inside of Maya, uh, creating models one of the examples that he shows cuz he has a course on this diving into using python inside of maya and he shows like taking a smaller model like something like a woven pattern of like you know maybe it looks like something like a rattan or wicker or something like that and it's just a little square of it but then like taking that and then wrapping that in a 3D model around like a torus, like you know, something that looks like a tire or a tube or something like that, and then deforming it, and then that whole pattern is falling across it. And it's not a texture, it's actual true three-dimensional uh you know, with all the edges and sides and and so forth, or taking something like a chain and and so Python can help to do all the additional calculations that would have normally have been done by hand or kind of hand replicating and so forth. So anything you can kind of think of like boring stuff that you would have to sit there and go through and automating, you know, he's showing ways that you can do that. And I didn't know, you know, it was used in this way. I mean, I, I've heard of Python being used in you know, music production for kind of algorithmic music or generative music, um, which is always kind of neat or building you know, plugins and things like that. And I've just recently saw you had a PyCoders thing about using it in Photoshop, Yeah, which I think would be kind of cool. I'll probably link to that one too. But then you know, this goes even further, the idea of if you're creating, you know, clothes for characters, like costuming the characters to be able to put together this entire, like, three-dimensional model of, you know, say this character all completely costumed out, and then to have a second model that's just the body shape, and then apply all of that and have it transform all of that to instantly fit that other character, which would have normally taken tons of time. Some interesting stuff that's in the article is, is that I he mentions that many of the processes that are mentioned about using in Python are still kind of tied to Python 2.7, hmm. which I guess is true in a lot of other industries, which you kind of, you know, run into. <laughs> yeah, And so the there's a little bit of a need to convert them to Python 3 and, and further. I don't know, it's just very interesting. And then lots of video examples showing how these things are being used. If you're not familiar with like animation today, like the idea of this Idea of rigging, which is a little bit like you know puppetry or marionettes, but for actual animation, where you have these solid things, where you can then give this to an animator, or you can think of it almost like creating models that are pl- used in a video game, where you are able to control, you know, the the facial interactions and it, it's deforming the all the the muscles and skin and so forth to follow along in the model, and it's really neat. I, I think of it some ways, like in video games, like if you are doing something like Pi Game or what have you. That there's these additional things you can add to create gravity or, you know, create these kind of physical, you know, physics kind of models of things. And this is the same kind of thing to work with. Like, how would something, you know, deform or solids or have particles to help them <laughs> save time and, and eventually, you know, spend more time creating things that are more useful. So it's a neat article. I, I really dug it.
1: Yeah, I think it's kind of important to mention too that there's not it's not a technical article there's not no not at all yeah a lot of code examples or anything here and a lot of it is you know he's got this course which i assume is a paid course yeah
0: it's a udemy thing yeah
1: yeah that he's kind of you know pitching throughout the throughout the article but it's not a very salesy article either like it it, it's really just an overview of like you know, hey, did you know Python is used in like the feature film industry? And like, here's like all these different ways that it it appears in this in this in the, in this industry. It's a whole bunch of stuff that I just had no idea. I also had never really seen like the animation pipeline broken down like that before, just because I've never really investigated it or, I guess, been interested in like being an animator or anything. So it was just kind of neat seeing like, oh, that's that's how they do all that stuff. Like that's that's kind of neat. But uh it's cool to know that Python plays. A big role there, and at the end of the article, he mentions some exciting things that he thinks that are exciting there's just lots of possibilities with Python and machine learning and computer vision to do things like helping tracking objects inside of a scene and, and everything so yeah, it's just really fascinating and it's an interesting look into an application of Python that is probably not something most people have on their minds and if you're into film, you know this could be a way to meld. Your interest in Python with your interest in in film and animation, so really cool stuff.
0: Yeah, I think about like the the lighting that needs to happen and these types of things that you know, everyone in these 3D scenes to to render it. There's all these you know individual like light sources that you have to control, and so if you wanted them all to move together, it normally would have been like a whole thing where you're having to like okay, move light one, move light two, and so forth. But the idea of being able to get them to work together the whole thing in animation has always been this idea of like, there was like a, you know, back in the Walt Disney original days of hand drawing things out is there would be a key animator and they would like animate a single frame and then they'd go and create another one and say, okay, these are the ones here. And now, Handed off to other people that do the tweening the in-between frames mm, and you know i mean that's really powerful what computers can do for creating all those in-betweens for you now of like yeah um, modifying and, and i i didn't even really think about the idea of like oh yeah you know you could apply machine learning in these situations and, and so forth and you know there's definitely lots of interesting ways to kind of grow this technology and and um Yeah, so it's kind of fun to think of ways that other industries are, (laughs) you know, automating what they're doing too. So
1: yeah, exactly.
0: So that gets us into projects. What's your project this week?
1: The project I've got this week is something I'd never heard of before, and it it sort of took me back to like my my beginnings in programming. So I I started when I learned to program. I learned to program in Basic on uh, an old 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 PC that my well, it wasn't old at the time, but super old nowadays. But a PC that my parents got when I was I was in elementary school when they when they got it. I one of the first things I did when I was learning to program in Basic was to make these little like text adventure games. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, I came across this project called Evenia. It's not a new project. I guess it's been been around for a while. You know, I I didn't look at the commit history, but there's some commits just on the repo that look like you know almost a year ago, and it might even be older than that at this point. So, but it it's a modern library for creating online multiplayer text games which just immediately was like oh wow that that sounds really intriguing that that looks really cool it looks like a, a pretty cool library to use you just it, you know it's it's a python library you you code using python modules you that get imported it's like just like coding in python like normal so there's a it, it looks like it's you know very low barrier to entry if you're already familiar with with python so pretty cool stuff. I did not get a chance to play around with it, but it looks like there's, you know, some pretty cool things that people have come up with uh with it. And it sounds like you've had some experience with it.
0: Yeah, yeah. The local uh user group here in Colorado Springs, Pie Springs, shout out <laughs> to them. Nice. They brought this in one time um before lockdown. It was like uh last, I guess might have been just in February or something. And we set it up and got it running. And had a central server and then the different people inside the the meetup were logging in and creating their, you know, characters and so forth. And we could interact inside there. So, you know, it's definitely multi-user, kind of this persistent kind of thing. And, you know, it comes with a a nice little demo game that you could kind of start working with. And we were, you know, we were up and running within 40 minutes of everybody just kind of getting going. And then um, what we were looking forward to doing eventually, and I'm not sure how far they went with it, is you know okay well how do you now make this our own game and that's where you start to really dive into like okay the objects and scripts and creating the in-game dialogue and and so forth but it was fun it was it was neat to you know see it standing up and and you know kind of have your own ownership of of a tool like this so i uh, i had fun with it and it, like i said it's, like you said it's not a big barrier to entry we, we were up and running with you know this real mix of <laughs> different user levels of <laughs> python
1: yeah and I mean it looks like there's a lot of activity going on yeah. uh, on this. There's been a lot of updates even since you used it, what, probably I guess six six or so months ago uh now. So it's very active in development and that just yeah, it just really caught my eye. I was like, that looks really cool. I wanna try to uh, do something there because it just instantly took me back to like those those, you know, little cave <laughs> adventure games yeah. that I made or, you know, space adventure games that were all text based when I was a when I was a kid. Uh so yeah, it looks looks really fun.
0: What do you got? So my project is related to an article, a recent Real Python article that's being turned into a course that is, uh, has to do with algorithms. Um, in this case, sorting algorithms, and it's a sorting algorithms visualizer, and uh, it allows you to see with Pygame how these things are sorting. And I, you know, I'm not a computer science background type person, and so I didn't know all the different forms that people have thought of ways of sorting. And so it was very interesting for me to learn, you know, okay, well, you could start with something very simple, like a bubble sort, just very, very time intensive, depending on the layout of, you know, what's happening in there to merge sorting, to quick sort and so forth. And, this actually, what's nice about it is you can kind of hear like simple examples where somebody will show you like, oh, like five numbers and then try to like animate, like, okay, well, it would do this first and do that. Well, this can actually show you, you know, whatever scale you want, but like in their examples, visually, they're showing like a hundred, say, random numbers and it's sorting them and then how that is happening visually. And it's using Pygame to, to do that, which I think is really cool. And I think it's a neat project that you could probably, like I think you mentioned earlier as... um, you know, taking what's there, if you wanted to make it your own, I could see turning this into a CLI pretty quickly or potentially turning it into, you mean a command line interface kind of thing where you're putting in how many values do you want to sort? And then maybe you want to choose which algorithm and then what kind of delay you want. Uh, Or going inside the Pygame side of things and making the uh, controls be more of a GUI kind of interactive thing. And so, I don't know, it's a neat project. I'm suggesting it to the guy who's created the video course, uh, Liam, that I think it might be kind of useful to to show this as a a form of animation that could kind of explain some of the things that are happening in there. Yeah. I want
1: to throw something in real quick, because since we're on the topic of sorting, that I just, people need to see this because it's hilarious. So have you seen the XKCD comic on ineffective sorts?
0: (laughs) No, I can imagine, no.
1: Okay, we'll have to post a link to it. Well, it's typical XKCD. It's, you know, it's these like right. funny, funny sorts. And he's got like uh, the job interview quick sort. And like the code is like, okay, so you choose a pivot. That's the first line of code. Then divide the last in half. And then for each half, check to see if it's sorted. No, no wait, It doesn't matter. Uh, compare each element to the pivot. So like, it's just these funny, funny sorts. But there is a Python project on GitHub, uh, or at least on the PyPI, that's was inspired by this and it's called stack sort. And this is hilarious. Uh, So it just came to me while you were talking about this. I just want to throw this out there. So bonus, I guess, third project (laughs) this week, what stack sort does is it has different kinds of sorts in it. So like the bubble sort, for example, but what bubble sort, the bubble sort function does is it doesn't have any particular implementation ready to go. What it does is it, is it scrapes Stack Overflow (laughs) to try to find a bubble sort implementation and then runs that so you have no idea what so if you go to the github repo there's like this, this disclaimer like do not actually like don't run this code on anything that actually matters like it's uh you know you have no idea what's gonna happen you're run, you're running random code from the from the internet but but i thought that was just absolutely hilarious that like yeah the whole thing is like we're just gonna oh bubble sort okay let me search quick sort for bubble sort Python and like find the first uh, the solution that has like the highest number of votes or I don't know how they they pick it and then we'll just run that and see what happens when we when we run it nice. on your input. <laughs> good stuff, yeah. So uh, not the most efficient uh, for any any of these, yeah. But uh, good stuff.
0: Yeah, it was interesting, you know, reviewing uh, the course and you know he's doing timing of these different things and then you know comparing the actual implementation inside of Python, which is. is is at the C sort of level, you know, the timing is just, right. It's just insanely (laughs) changed. And so it's one of those things where like people say, oh, Python's slow. It's like, well, you know, a lot of it's happening in C, you know, and (laughs) if you're using the optimized stuff. And so, yeah, it was, uh, it was intriguing to kind of watch those differences. And, and this is obviously slowed down too, because it's using, you know, this as a way to sort of teach you what, what's happening.
1: Right. Exactly. It's, it's a teaching tool, not to, uh, this is back to the, the sorting, visualizer yeah. it's a <laughs> teaching tool and not a an actual story <laughs> yeah, exactly library yeah
0: yeah all right well thanks for bringing all this stuff again this week yeah thanks for having me all right talk to you soon yeah see you later don't forget to subscribe to the tech meme ride home podcast i want to thank david amos for coming on the show this week and bringing along all those great articles and i want to thank you for listening to the real python podcast Make sure you subscribe to the podcast in your favorite player. And if you like the show, leave us a five-star rating and a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey. and I look forward to talking to you soon.